This is episode 29 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, May 22nd, 2012. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free Isn't Freedom. So uh, this is not a Fosdom talk, although it is. It's almost a Fosdom talk. Uh, Richard Fontana gave two talks of very similar content, uh, one at Fosdom, which we've been hearing recordings from up until now for the last year uh, or something. Uh, well, most of, this year, <laughs> most of this year's episodes have been that. Well, since February. Yeah, but that's most of this year. Since the end of February. And he gave a very similar talk, uh, a longer version, at the Linux Collaboration Summit. And this recording is the one from the Linux Collaboration Summit, uh, which uh, it's this very similar content. So well, and actually, it's I'm really glad that we we did this because you know we've been saying that some of the talks have been you know suffered from being too short, and this is the same content, but it's um, it, you know we had a chance to really expand a little bit more on it. And uh, and it brings us closer to the future. And I don't, I don't think at this moment I have his slides as the moment we record uh, for that version. I have them for the old version, but I'll make, I'll put pressure on him. I didn't, I actually, and consequently, I didn't have the slides. I, I, I was at uh, the Collaboration Summit, but I was in um, another talk at the time um, about GNOME, which was a great talk. Why um, would you go to by, that? <laughs> by Juan Jose um, of Agelia, and that was great. Um, but, uh, so, and I, and I knew that we were recording Richard, so I didn't feel too bad about it. So I'm, 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 I'm glad for that, but I listened to it basically without the slides and I thought it was okay. There were times I really wished that I had the slides, especially when he described pictures that he was putting up, um, and quotes that he didn't read. So just a couple of times, but you, you don't need the slides for the content of the talk. Uh, but for the full experience, I think it would be helpful. For the full experience, you have to see it in person. That's true. So you can't have the full experience. Actually, I think that, um, you know, having not been there for the full experience, um, but having seen Richard speak in the past, I'm really impressed at, um, at I, I really like this talk. I thought he had a lot of good ideas and, um, you know, and, and, and spoke really well. I, it takes me back to when, the, the, I think the first time that, um, that either Richard or I presented in, to, in the free software world was at the, the same event that was held at, um, at Columbia. Um, when we were both at SFLC many years ago, and we both really, I don't know, I wasn't a very good speaker at the time. It was so new to me, and um, and it's really cool to hear how good of a speaker Richard's become. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I was a pretty experienced speaker, but nobody wanted me to speak at that event, um, as I recall. They yeah, I think of. It, was, uh, it was all lawyers that spoke at that event. Um, no, not actually. Some oh, were really? not lawyers yet. All recall. lawyers are about to be lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I was, I was told it would be my speaking. The, the administration told me that my speaking at that event would be the same as the caterer speaking or something like that. Ugh. Yeah. Having the help speak or something like that. That's what the organizers of the event said, as I recall. I think, I don't know. Anyway, all I'm saying is that, uh, is that I think it's really cool to sort of, um, you know, I don't know. It's neat. It's neat to see how, how, um, how folks have developed in this space and, you know, you, you didn't, as you said, you were an experienced speaker at the time. So, um, you know, I think comparing me and Richard 
then to now is more interesting. Yeah, it could be true. <laughs> Comparing media anyway, caterers as the organizers I thought, of that I thought legal he summit. Did, I thought Fontana did a great job, actually, in this talk, even though um, I found a lot of his ideas intriguing, even though I'm not, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that Richard's really good about doing when he talks is, um, is sort of saying, um, you know, well, I don't know for sure, but this is what I think, or this is my instinct. And I really like that about what he says. It's hard to then object to what he said since. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll have some objections, but we can talk about okay. those after everyone's heard uh, Richard Fontana's talk from the Linux Collaboration Center. So I want to thank everybody for coming back uh, for the afternoon session. For those of you just joining us uh, for the first time on this track today, uh, welcome. And this is the legal and policy track. I'd like to introduce my good friend and mutual trolling uh, buddy, I suppose, uh, Richard Fontana. And he is going to be speaking about his belief that the decline of the GPL is imminent. And no, not he's going to tell us what to do about it. So with that, Richard Fontana from Red Hat. Oh, thank you, Bradley. Uh, yeah, so actually, oh, <laughs> thank you. I guess you're clapping for Bradley. Um, so no, no, actually, I don't know if there is a decline of the GPL, and I have no idea what to do about it if there is one. So uh, this is, uh, you know, this is not like official Red Hat stuff, but, but, but actually, I mean, some of the, the things I will talk about here do relate to uh, the work I've done at Red Hat. So, so relevant bio, I, I kind of hate biography slides, but, but this is kind of relevant to this talk. So, so I've been at Red Hat for a little over four years, and at Red Hat, I've been focusing on um, you know open source and free software, legal issues. Um, you know, I'm sort of like the subject matter expert in the legal department on those those sorts of issues. Um, before Red Hat, I worked at SFLC with Bradley at the time, uh, where I primarily worked with Evan Moglin on uh, drafting GPL version three for the FSF. And so that experience certainly uh, influenced a lot of my views on things and, and my experiences at Red Hat influenced my views. So um, that is not a picture of me, that is Richard Stallman, but that's Richard Stallman as he uh, apparently looked uh, at the launch of the GPLv3 process in January 2006. And this is a quote, if you can read it, it's a quote from uh, the first rationale document that accompanied the first draft of GPLv3. And uh, I wrote that, I ghost wrote it I guess you could say, but Evan Moglin was the person who wanted to put it in this document, and uh, Evan Moglin felt that uh, you know we're, we're writing this rationale document for the first draft of GPLv3. We might as well take the opportunity to sort of slap around the, the BSD people, right? Because uh, as as Bradley could explain better than I can, the the whole um, history um, for the past twenty years or more, more actually, of um, free software licensing, free software itself goes back much further than licensing, but for 20, 25 years, there's been this debate over copyleft versus non-copyleft. And we often conceptualize it as GPL versus BSD, and I think that's how we would have thought about it in 2006. And uh, Evan wanted to make the point that, look, we, we won. Uh, the biggest commercial uh, ecosystem of free software is on the copyleft side, not the non-copyleft side. So that's the reason why that's in there. Um, so several years pass by, and we have uh, Aou. So, so, so uh, Aou, this is Apache Open Office. So, so uh, without going into too many details, um, basically there was, you know, there's a software called Open Office, and it was, it was, uh, 
an open source project, but it was very tightly controlled by Sun, and Sun also had a, a proprietary branded version called Star Office. And uh, there was a fork of it uh, that was maintained by Michael Meeks, and there were there was a lot of tension between you know would be community contributors and and Sun, and then Oracle acquired Sun and. Uh, things didn't change, and so the Document Foundation was formed, and there was a LibreOffice fork, and the fork was under the open source license of the project, which was LGPL. And uh, they, the Document Foundation hoped that Oracle would join this community, this you know, authentic community organization around this new uh, project, but Oracle refused to join, and in fact, several months later, uh, announces that uh, it's donating uh, the code for OpenOffice to the Apache Foundation under the Apache license. And uh, this is Rob Weir from IBM. Just thought I'd have a photo of him there. Uh, and so this is the only photo of Bradley, I think, in this in this version of this presentation. So, so, so Bradley. So as as happens so often in, in the history of free software, Bradley is somewhere uh, causing trouble. And and uh, <laughs> so he, he he writes this blog post saying that IBM and Oracle have kind of teamed up to. Betray, betray the community by actually sort of perversely manipulating, um, you know, so Oracle had copyright control over the open office because Sun had required copy, joint copyright assignment of contributions, whatever contributions it got. And um, so they used that and the power of, um, you know, permissive licensing to donate this code to the Apache Foundation where it could be a, a project license under the Apache license. And so in Bradley's view, you know, totally undermining the community that was building behind LibreOffice. I mean, it hasn't actually turned out to be very successful, I would say, but, but this was the fear you know, at the time. Uh, so in response to this, this is Ian Scarrett, who's a marketing guy at the Eclipse Foundation, another one of those uh, floss nonprofits that Bradley loves so much. And, and Ian, uh, he's very upset by what Bradley writes. So he, he writes this blog post saying, actually, strict copyleft licenses, he means the GPL family, is a dying breed, they're a dying breed, uh, he says he hears this prominent open source lawyer uh, saying that GPLv3 in particular is a failed experiment. Uh, it's had little adoption. And he says, you know, experience has shown that restrictive licensing, again, a kind of synonym for the GPL approach, ha just limits your community. Now, interestingly, Eclipse itself uses a copyleft license, but it's, uh, you know, these, these sort of events, and actually uh, a posting just today by Mike Belinkovic, who's the head of the Eclipse Foundation, uh, to the one of the OSI mailing lists sort of confirms uh, something that Bradley and I have debated, which is whether the Eclipse public license is strong or weak copyleft. It's a weak copyleft license. So basically, Ian is, is siding with the, um, the old BSD side on this. And, but what's interesting about this is that Ian Scarrett is saying that actually the GPL is losing. And I think this is the first time uh, that I'm aware of in the whole history of this debate of GPL versus BSD style licensing that anyone has said that the G GPL is actually losing the battle. It was just kind of a policy debate before that. So um, this guy, Matthew Aslett, who is kind of a t tech uh, technology analyst of some sort, uh, used this as an opportunity to publish something he must have been planning on publishing anyway, where he purported to have stats or to have analyzed stats, I think originally coming from Black Duck, saying that the GPL family was, while it was numerically increasing, so the, the number of GPL family projects, and by GPL family I mean GPL, LGPL, AGPL, V2, V3, you know, all versions, the, the number of projects is increasing from year to year, according to his data, the share of the pie is decreasing. So, so uh, as a percentage of projects overall, the, the GPL family share is, is decreasing. 
he says that his stats show that 2006 was the peak moment for what he calls vendor engagement with strong copyleft, meaning the GPL. And that since 2002, he sees a trend of increased uh, engagement with non-copyleft licensing by vendors. So he's focused on vendors. And I don't exactly know what he means by engagement and, and so forth. But this is the language he uses. And I think it's, um, as I will say, explain it, it sort of struck a chord with a lot of people. So this raises a question. Um, what's interesting about this at all is, is uh, you know, it, it sort of assumes that uh, everyone agrees that the GPL is the most popular license, or the GPL family was or is the dominant uh, license type. And this is something we all assume. Uh, how did the GPL actually get very popular? I mean, it's, it's something that I don't know if people really talk about. They just sort of assume it happened. Uh, the idea of a popularity of licenses probably didn't mean very much for a long time until, uh, you know, sort of the ecosystem of free software projects and, and, and the technology used uh, to facilitate collaboration evolved in such a way that it became more meaningful to kind of think of this uh, set of projects out there and that you could sort of like analyze in terms of licensing, right? So. So, uh, I mean, in a way, it's kind of obvious how the GPL caught on. It was, you know, first the, the GNU projects uh, that Richard Stallman originally started up uh, uh, with the FSF uh, were very popular, particularly Emacs and GCC and GDB and uh, that whole range of projects that emerged in the late 80s. Um, and of course, it was Linux, the Linux kernel project, which was probably played a key role uh, as the first major project, or what proved to be a major project, uh, that uh, adopted the FSFs or the, the GNU projects license as the license of their own project. So, I mean, there was some use of the GPL or prototype versions of the GPL by non-GNU projects before then, but, but the kernel was the first project that really caught on outside of the GNU project that picked the GPL, to my knowledge. And uh, I think this had a sort of cascading effect because of the popularity of, of uh, I mean, it wasn't just the kernel. It was systems that were built with, you know, distributions with the kernel and and the, and new tools and so forth. So, so it was kind of a. It's hard to separate all this. You know, uh, there was a the rise of popularity of the GPL was uh, uh, inseparable from the rise of Linux, the kernel. Uh, I never thought I'd use that phrase, uh, the or is that the kernel Linux, right? So, so the Linux kernel. Uh, inseparable from the rise of Linux kernel project and the rise of, of GNU and, and these, you know, these sort of uh, free versions of or alternatives to Unix that people could install on their uh, PCs, right? Uh, so I say there's a generation gap. So I, I, think, I think maybe this was part of it, too. I, I, I have tried to study the early history of the Linux kernel project, and I'm struck by uh, how I, I, I detect that, that uh, the early kernel developers were uh, in a certain age group and, and, and the BSD Unix crowd uh, seemed to be a kind of older group of people. And I don't know if that's, that's borne out, but that's kind of been my sense. So I think there was something, something generationally going on, a sort of generational rebellion that, that led to the popularity of the GPL. Uh, it isn't until the um, announcement of the Netscape Mozilla source release in the late 90s which was sort of the beginning of the whole conceptualization of open source as open source that I, that I found any evidence that people have sort of thought of the GPL as the most popular license because Netscape was originally thinking of using the GPL and then got criticized for writing its own license, uh, which was you know, incompatible with the GPL. And this, so this has sort of created this opportunity for people to think about what the license of such a major new project should be and why it should be the GPL. Um, 
So in um, 2002, uh, David Wheeler wrote this uh, well-known essay where he actually, it's really the first attempt to kind of analyze license stats, and it's basically d demonstrating the dominance of the GPL. Uh, and, um, you know, so he looks at source forage and fresh meat and, uh, you know, sort of looking at projects numerically, I guess, comparing them one-to-one. -one. He also analyzes uh, Red Hat Linux 7.1, in terms of lines of code, uh, and get somewhat different results, but still showing GPL dominance, right? So, uh, you know, just as sort of as an aside, this is this whole idea of analyzing, uh, trying to trying to figure out license popularity by analyzing, uh, I guess, you know, data sets of projects is very problematic, and for kind of obvious reasons. Um, you know, projects are not equal. So, so, you know, there are very small projects, there are very big projects. There are projects uh, that are big in terms of their, you know, lines of code uh, that are small. There are projects that are commercially important, commercially unimportant, uh, projects that are fundamental to particular technologies and platforms and ecosystems, and then projects that are not so important. So, so typically when people analyze, like, license popularity, it seems like they're assuming, they usually take the one-to-one -one approach. It's, like, the easiest way to analyze things. But uh, it's, it's really not, it's quite problematic. And the other thing is that it's difficult uh, very often to actually say what the license of a particular project or package is. It's not, uh, uh, you know, I hope I'm not revealing any, any sort of like secret here by saying this, that, it, that sometimes it's hard to sort of pin down as a single, in, to a single license what the license of a particular project is. Many, many projects, for, in many cases this is for good reason, many projects use say LGPL for certain components and GPL for other components. So it's, it's, it's hard to do. Um, so then just continuing with the history, we, we, we enter this period, um, so the day before GPLv3 is released, Palomita, which was one of the dominant, uh, I guess still is the dominant um, uh, compliance tool companies. So there's already kind of an industry established of companies that are built around uh, the increased use of open source by enterprises and and fear of, you know, license compliance and the GPL and all that. And, uh, right before GPLv3 is, a, is released, Palomita announces that it has a tool for detecting GPL3 software in, in you know, uh, software used by enterprises. So, so uh, that's kind of the, this next era we enter. So everyone assumes that GPL is dominant, right? And, and probably for good reason. There's no reason to doubt that. But uh, the focus was on, you know, is, is GPLv3 going to actually gain any traction over GPLv2. So we, we lived through that period for a while. Um, just during that period, uh, the uh, both Black Duck and Palomita apparently agreed in 2008 that GPL family was 70% of uh, all licenses in use. I have no idea what that is based on, but but it's probably not you know too far from the truth, right? And I, I think that this period is ending uh, personally when when Chris DeBono gave a talk at OSCON in. Uh, uh, 2010, where he said that on Google Code, which was the, the project hosting site that Google had started up during this period, uh, they had found that GPL3 was actually more popular than GPL2. And, to, you know, at that point, I just sort of stopped being interested in the whole topic of, like, whether V3 was uh, going to get more popular than V2. Now, interestingly, uh, in 2007, Stormy Peters was working at OpenLogic. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, Bradley, but... Uh, yeah, of course I do. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so she wrote this blog post, which I, I do not remember seeing, uh, but, but she said that, you know, she's actually disputing, the first person who's ever disputed the, the idea that GPL might be dominant. So she says that, you know, 
uh, Palomino, I'm sorry, OpenLogic is tracking a set of several hundred projects that their customers are interested in. And uh, in fact, uh, the dominant license is the Apache license. The Apache license in 2007 was, was only three, I assume she meant uh, Apache 2.0. So it was only you know, a few years old. And I think that 75% Apache, 20% GPL or LGPL, I think that's, that's I don't know what that means, but I, I think it's, it's interesting to bear in mind that, that maybe there, she, was, she was observing something uh, relevant here. Uh, you know, at, at the time, if you go back to this, this posting, you know, people commented on this post and said, you know, what, what is this really based on? Are you, aren't you ignoring the fact that these customers already have Linux installed internally and so forth? But, but I think this was maybe some signal that there was some, uh, uh, you know, Desirability among a certain type of customer for, uh, you know, Apache license software as opposed to GPL license software. So I don't know. But 2009. Um, this I don't know if anyone remembers Eric Raymond, but uh, he uh, <laughs> actually I'm not supposed to to mention his name because he's been written out of the history books. But but he uh, he he sort of rose from the dead and and. Uh, Oh, so he was. So I think it, it was it was the FSF lawsuit against Cisco that uh, uh, that's probably him. Uh, so 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 he he was very upset about the FSF lawsuit against Cisco. So he says, you know, he writes this, this thing, this this blog post. I don't I don't understand it. I guess it's an essay, not a blog post. Uh, he says uh, he's decided that the GPL does more harm than good because it creates need, more needless fear than it does create what he calls in-group signaling. And I don't know what he meant by that, but it's, some, it's sort of typical Eric Raymond uh, pseudo-anthropological nonsense. But uh, I think it's interesting because we should remember that Eric Raymond was a pro-GPL person. And a few days later, another pro-GPL person decides, you know, he sort of gets religion, as it were, and uh, decides that, that he's a fan of the Apache license instead of the GPL. This is Matt Acey. Matt Acey sort of personifies the open source uh, business bubble in many ways. Uh, he, he says, this is a very interesting blog post, he says that uh, the reason he liked the GPL is because the GPL was like opening a canister of radioactive waste. Uh, while your competitors can touch it, you're dead certain they won't. That, that is just very revealing about how he viewed the GPL and maybe open source in general, because he probably thought of, the, of open source as GPL in a certain kind of crude sense. And what he saw the sort of sort of the special business advantage of open source. He kind of saw things in those terms. That's very revealing. He was working, I think, at Alfresco at the time, which had a kind of open core uh, business model. So this is sort of uh, makes sense. But but interestingly, he says he's decided that you know he sort of renounces all that. He says the Apache license is is better. It's it's the more open license. He says than the GPL, and and it's a better capitalist tool. So. Uh, I work in Western Massachusetts and uh, at Red Hat's engineering headquarters, and so I, so I started Red Hat during this period. And when I come to Red Hat, obviously I think that the GPL is the, the best possible license, right? Because I had, I've been representing clients like the FSF, well, it was basically the FSF, right? Um, I had clients at SFLC who were not using the GPL, but the FSF was my main client, and, and what I had mainly worked on was drafting GPLv3. So, so obviously I really believed in copyleft and one of the things that attracted me to Red Hat was Red Hat's close association with the GPL in some sort of loose sense. Um, I, I viewed GPLv3 adoption very approvingly, kind of in a quiet way, but and I still, still sort of root for GPLv3. Whenever I see a, a GPLv3 license project, I, I sort of silently cheer, sometimes not so silently. So, you know, you can, you can understand that. 
Um, what I found at Red Hat was that, uh, and I think actually, so GPLv3 sort of exposed this. Uh, because before GPLv3, people didn't think about the version issue before. But because I was thinking about GPLv3 versus GPLv2, I noticed that uh, in this post-GPLv3 era, so, so Red Hat was, you know, always involved in kind of launching new uh, open source projects. It's just something that Red Hat does all the time, right? But it was always like, almost always GPLv2, like, you know, so open source, uh, we open source directory server, what license? GPLv2. We open source uh, satellite and called it Spacewalk, what license? GPLv2. It was, you know, there was never any kind of uh, corporate edict to use GPLv2 that was written down, to my knowledge, but but it was just like sort of this default license that Red Hat engineers use. And it, it struck me as odd, I suppose, because I had worked on GPLv3. You know, why, I sort of understood why, why there was some resistance to GPLv3 among some developers, among some you know, managers. But, um, but still, I, I, I started to kind of question this, I suppose. And I heard from many engineering managers this view that, uh, what I call a sort of orthodox view, that the GPL is a better license for building communities. So, um, you know, one engineering manager who uh, Bradley also knows once told me about uh, one of his developers on his team wanted to put a project under the BSD license, and he was kind of troubled by this because he really wanted to, he really thought that GPL was a better license for building communities and that the BSD license was a dangerous license to use because you, maybe not dangerous, but a, a suboptimal license to use because it would lead to, uh, you know, poorer community building, right? So I heard this from many uh, engineering managers. Uh, Later on, you know, someone at Red Hat one day says on an internal mailing list, we are a GPL company. And, and by that point, uh, you know, it was a couple of years ago, I, I started to really question this. Because I'd seen that, you know, as Red Hat had grown, we had, we had whole groups of developers who were uh, very much anti-GPL in their outlook. Right? The JBoss division that, you know, we basically acquired this group of employees and they came from a very anti-GPL culture. This Java EE culture was anti-GPL, very pragmatic, um, you know, the, so there were other developers as well, you know, developers who, uh, who were writing these little kind of web-oriented web tools. They were saying, you know, they would sometimes contact me and say, you know, is it okay for me to use the BSD license or the MIT license? I know we're kind of a GPL company, but uh, I, I think, you know, it was often like particular language communities. So like, yes, there are some PHP developers at, at Red Hat. So, so there, there, was, there was one PHP guy who said, you know, you know, most PHP projects are under like the BSD license or the MIT license or the, maybe the PHP license. And, uh, uh, you know, can I use that license? And, instead of GPL, because they wanted to, they wanted uh, users in that community to adopt their projects, right? Uh, and I also mentioned, you know, Java, Java was sort of, uh, the Apache license was becoming very dominant in open source Java at the time, right? The thing that was most interesting to me was that uh, more and more I saw that developers, uh, engineers at Red Hat had, who, who wanted to use non-copyleft licensing for projects seemed to be the most thoughtful uh, about license choice, right? So the, the ones who wanted to use GPL were just kind of either reflexively using GPL, as I said, or had this belief with, you know, without much thoughtfulness that GPL must lead to better community building. But the ones who wanted to use um, non-copyleft licenses had, had very sophisticated arguments for why that made sense for their particular situation. So they actually, and, and these kind of really mirrored the arguments we heard traditionally for the GPL. So they were arguing that in many situations, a non-copyleft license leads to a uh, stronger community than a copyleft license. Something I had not really uh, thought about before. But when I, I, you know, I thought about it, I thought, yeah, yeah, there are examples of projects that 
have strong communities that don't use the GPL after all, right? Um, they started talking about governance and the need for wide adoption in you know particular cases. There's things that that um, you know I don't think Red Hat developers had really thought much about in the past, right? So so the most thoughtfulness of uh, about license choice was coming from the non-copy left crowd. So back to the Aslet story. Um, what I find found interesting about this, and the reason I, I've been kind of doing this as a talk, is that the the responses to Matthew Aslett's uh, you know, purported stats showing the uh, decline of the GPL, uh, the responses are, in a, in a sense, more interesting than Aslett's writings themselves, although I think those are interesting too. Um, you know, why, is, why are so many people sort of writing about this in response? I think, I think Bradley may have written something in response. Um, I know Matthew Garrett, uh, I don't know if he's in this room, but he, he wrote something in response. Uh, uh, Chris Weber did, and I'll get to that. But, you know, so, so for some of us, uh, you know, for me, it confirms something that I was already seeing inside Red Hat and also outside of Red Hat. I was seeing, I, in some way that I couldn't quantify, I was seeing more and more interest in licenses like the Apache license instead of the GPL. I couldn't, I can't really show you like data that would, would establish that. But this is, this, so, so Aslet's um, story sort of struck a chord in, in a sense, right? It confirmed this anecdotal evidence, or seemed to. Um, and, and other people were very defensive about this. I, I thought that was quite interesting, right? So, um, rightly so, many people criticized his methodology. I think Bradley was one of them, right? So Bradley said, you know, he's using blacked up data and we have no idea what that's based on, right? So, uh, but then he then uses Flossmole, which is apparently uh, everything with Flossmole is kind of publicly disclosed and it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, replicable results can be achieved, and apparently he says he gets the same results by analyzing Flossmole. So he responds to these criticisms, right? Matthew Garrett wrote this blog post later on where he speculates that, um, you know, he, he's very skeptical about this, but he says if there is some kind of like decline going on somewhere, it's probably in, in some subsector of the, of, the, of the world, you know, it's probably uh, Floss web developers who, uh, who haven't been exposed to the strong copyleft tradition. So, so there's, they don't come out of the strong copyleft GPL world. They're, they're, for whatever reason, coming out of this world where they're used to permissive uh, non-copyleft licenses. Chris Weber, uh, who is a web developer and a Python developer himself, wrote about this actually not, not so long ago. And he says, you know, he, he sees something himself. He's, he, he, he thinks there's something to this. He says, in the world of web development, uh, there's been this focus on libraries and frameworks for, to, to a significant extent, not so much on applications. Like applications tend to be proprietary, but the interest in open source is at the library and the framework level, right? So he sees this in Python, he sees this in, in languages like Ruby. Um, these developers want the widest adoption possible for their uh, projects, for their frameworks and so forth, for their little libraries and tools, and that's why they're, they're not inclined to use the GPL. Uh, and he, but he also says that this is also a failure of the copyleft crowd. So Chris Weber is himself, I think, favorable to copyleft. He has, he's, I know he's running a project that uses the AGPL, GNU Media Goblin. So he's very sympathetic to copyleft. And he, he says that advocates of copyleft uh, have basically ignored the, um, the, the web, what he would call the web world. And in a sense, this is like, you know, this is sort of true. I mean, Bradley used to give this, these talks about um, this subject, but you were really the only person doing so, right? Uh, and you sort of stopped doing that talk, right? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, as sort of a confirmation of this, uh, so, so you know, another thing that happens during this period is the rise of GitHub. 
And um, you know, there's a there's an there's an ugly side to the rise of GitHub, I suppose. Um, but but uh, there's also, I mean, Git, I see you know with Red Hat developers certainly. I mean, GitHub is really transforming things in ways that I, I can't quite predict what the outcome will be right now. But I think it's having a big effect on the whole way we uh, you know develop open source software and free software, and and the whole way we conceptualize community. And and uh, I don't know where that's going to end up, and I don't know if that's completely good or completely bad, but it's it's certainly something important that's happening. But anyway, so apparently if you, so, that, so this guy John Bies tried to analyze this issue of license popularity for GitHub and determine that MIT license is actually by far the most popular license. And you know, then followed by BSD, Apache, um, you see in the middle there GPL slash MIT, which I must refer to jQuery, which is really MIT license. And um, the, the GPL at the end is the Linux kernel, I believe, but we won't talk about that. Uh, so, Brian Prophet, who is a tech journalist, uh, blames GPLv3, and this is sort of, in a way, I was waiting for someone to blame GPLv3, so he, he did it. And he says that, um, you know, because he, he, he noted that Aslet said that 2006 was this peak, peak moment, right? And 2006 was when GPLv3 was primarily being drafted, right? So, he says, um, uh, opponents of Floss have used GPLv3 to drive a wedge in the in the community. I don't know what that really means, but just kind of create FUD. And he also, he blames the FSF as well. So this was around the time that the FSF was talking about um, that issue of um, automatic termination under GPLv2 versus the cure period in GPLv3. And and I think he's, he's making reference to that, right? So, uh, and he's, he, he theorizes that this whole, you know, this atmosphere of FUD and division and so forth uh, is driving vendors to, to just kind of shun the GPL altogether. Uh, Rob Landley, I should mention, uh, blames Bradley basically uh, for the, for what he assumes is is the decline of the GPL, right? And uh, now I know he I know he apologized to you. Well, he apologized to you for his his conduct, his, his the, comments. He said. But did, did he renounce them? I don't know. Ah. I don't know what that means. In that Me neither. So the only person who has the courage to actually challenge Aslet's stats is John Sullivan of the FSF. And he actually does um, his own research on Debian releases, and he finds very different results, right? Uh, and, and you know, he makes the argument that um, Debian is actually a good uh, thing to look at because, because you know, Debian is, is very, you know, it's, it's sort of a kitchen sink distribution, but it's also it, it, you only package things that there's interest in. So, so Debian's kind of a useful uh, uh, source to look at, right? He finds that. Year after year, well, release after release, uh, the percentage of GPL family projects grows, uh, and it, and the trend only increases after the introduction of GPL v3. So this is like totally the opposite result that Aslet is is reaching, and I, and you know, this just shows you that we don't really know what's what's actually going on. Aslet's theory is interesting, uh, if you can kind of translate it from MBA speak. So he says that what's going on, in his opinion, is a shift from a period where we had single vendor control of, uh, you know, I guess, corporate-oriented open source projects to a new era of multi-vendor participation in open source projects. So he's obviously only focused on the commercial side and not that sort of pure, you know, the sort of non-commercial community side of things. Uh, he also says that what's going on is increasingly we see um, what he calls complementary vendors 
being engaged with open source product development, whereas in an earlier period we had open source specialists. Now, he does not define these terms, but I think I know what he means. He means uh, complementary vendors must mean companies that primarily make their money from ways other than distributing software that is nominally, in some sense, uh, open source license. And this is the, the whole attempt to find a definition of this doesn't really make much sense because he's I, he's actually talking about the dual licensing and open core business model. But but to to call that sector open source specialists is just very strange to me. But I think he's actually on to something uh, true here, nonetheless. Right. So this this he's seeing this decline of 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 the what I would call the dual licensing open core type companies, right? So um, you know my views on what's going on. So I, I think there is some there is something going on here, right? And some of these some of these theories are are on the right track. Some of them aren't. Uh, I think that I see you know developers are increasingly skeptical about these traditional orthodox beliefs about the GPL. So so you don't need in this view you don't need the GPL to build strong communities around your project. It's, you know, license choice is, is still relevant, but, but copyleft is not necessary. This idea that you, you, you can't build a strong community with a, with a permissively licensed, uh, with a permissive license is just something that increasingly is questioned by developers. Now, I'm not talking about companies, right? So also, so as was focused on vendors, I'm talking, I'm focused on um, engineers and developers, individual developers. Uh, also, this you know related to this is this idea that you know copyleft. Just because you use a copyleft license doesn't mean you're going to automatically get this strong community. Because there have been so many examples to the contrary. Sometimes intentional examples, right? Intentional cases where companies did not want to have communities around their software, but they used the GPL in some ways, in a perverse way, to, to discourage the growth of community. Uh, other ways, and this is where you know I think Red Hat has some experience. Red Hat would put software under GPLv2, and and often no community formed around the project, right? So there's no magic to using GPL. Um, this whole theory that using the GPL promotes giving back to the project is another thing that I think uh, is increasingly questioned, right? There's no there's no real evidence of this. It's just sort of assumed to be an effect of the license, even though the license doesn't require it. Um, and I think interesting here, maybe the real story here is, is that weak copyleft licensing, this in intermediate category represented by the LGPL and uh, you know, less used licenses like MPL and EPL, sort of in between the, the, the two extremes, maybe they're, they're just less relevant now uh, because whatever you thought you could achieve with a weak copyleft license, you could just achieve just as uh, optimally with a uh, non-copyleft license. I think that um, the criticism of Bradley, who has left the room, is unfair. I think it's actually GPL non-enforcement that's the interesting story here. Uh, I think, and I have no proof of this, right? But but I, I, this is just my intuition. I think that that so so there's there's been growing consciousness, of course, of widespread non-compliance with the GPL in some sections of the technology world. And I think developers who, who you know, in many ways are very idealistic or at least believe in the policy behind the GPL are very frustrated at their, their policy goals not being met. And, and I could see that having an effect of, I don't know, just sort of a, a kind of disgust of sorts that might lead one to just think that the GPL is not a very powerful instrument. And, and why bother to use it when the end result is no different from what you'd achieve with a permissive license? Um, so you have, all, you know, in some ways, it's better to use a non-copyleft license because you don't really have as, the same kind of violation going on. 
Uh, and, and it leads to an uncomfortable question that, that, you know, maybe the GPL is just this aspirational thing. It's not, it's not something that is meant to be enforced. Uh, so Bradley has returned. I was just saying that, that the criticism view by uh, Rob Lamley is unfair. It's non-enforcement is the real story. Uh, but this is, you know, what, what presentation would be complete without a uh, photo of Martin Mikos? So uh, I, I theorize, you know, so Aslan is talking about this as just sort of like this, this secular change in the world of open source, enterprise open source, right? But, but I, I theorize that um, something else is going on that's related to that. I, I think that developers uh, gradually became disgusted with this kind of dis business model. I, I, because I sort of sense it in myself, right? And, and I, I think, I, think I, I was influenced by the views of many people who were, I'm not a, a developer, you know, but I, I was influenced by developers who, who wrote about this. You know, especially around 2009 or so, you started to see many people being vocal about this issue. That there was a lot of attention about this term open core, and it sort of started to lose meaning. Uh, but, uh, but I think um, this, you know, I would say uh, that if any person is responsible for any possible decline of the GPL, it's probably Martin Mikos. And I think it's because he, uh, you know, I, I, I would say he, he damaged the reputation of the GPL among real, authentic community GPL project, you know, would-be GPL using project developers. Uh, I really do believe that. I don't, I can't prove that this is so. And maybe Matthew Aslett's take on it is more accurate. Maybe it's just that this is not a profitable business model. That's probably the real truth. But I would like to believe that something like this is going on. Now, interestingly, um, yesterday, Martin Mikos said, uh, was quoted by Zonker as saying, uh, he now believes that it's not the license that a project is under that's as important as the way a project is governed. Now, Eucalyptus is still using this contributor agreement that says you have to sign over your firstborn child and, and everything to, to Martin Mikos, so I, I don't know whether that's going to change, but, but um, you know, maybe he's, he's come to realize this himself, right? So is GPLv3 to blame? Uh, uh, this is very hard for me to judge. So, so I think I see. I look back on GPLv3 and, I, and I, see, I see how there are some things about it that shows influence of the open source bubble. It was sort of a wake-up call, you know, telling people to kind of, you know, open source is not just about froth; it's about real policy issues. But it was also a product of that era. And you know, the the thing that comes to mind is the the late introduction of these limited badgeware provisions in GPLv3. Which um, you know, I've been talking about with some people recently. The badgeware companies were a variety of um, uh, dual licensing, open core type business model uh, from the mid 2000s, and basically they they had licenses. They were using licenses that, that they called attribution licenses that basically were designed to discourage anyone from taking their software and modifying it. And um, you know, they, they kind of convinced uh, the FSF that uh, you know a limited form of this would be okay to allow. Uh, not in GPLv3, but as a sort of compatible additional restriction, right? So I think that that's just an example, but I, I think that in some ways GPLv3, you know, with in hindsight could have been different and could have done more to stem any possible shift away from copyleft that might be going on, even though I don't know if anything's going on. So um, I think that there is a problem, there is another problem, which is, uh, maybe also behind what is possibly going on, and that's this issue of complexity. So uh, the FSF was aware of this from the beginning. So in, again, in that same first rationale document, uh, the FSF says, and, and uh, I, I think I wrote this sentence as well, uh, actually most of the sentence I wrote, 
uh, actually two sentences. Uh, the FSF said, <laughs> said that um, usually if it's a really long sentence, that's that's a sign that I wrote it. But the um, the, the FSF uh, uh, said that. Uh, you know, we know that people are complaining about how GPL2 is, is too complex and they want a very simple license, but you know, we have a lot of things we want to accomplish with this license and we can't make it, it uh, any shorter. I think this was actually, again, Evan's idea because, because we found out um, right before we released the first draft of GPLv3, we found out, we did a word count, we found out that GP, the first draft was actually quite a bit longer than GPLv2 and this was kind of concern. So, you know, we wanted to say something about this. Um, the, the reason I said I didn't write this whole thing is that you see the phrase, do the job that needs to be done, that's, that's total RMS. I would never use that phrase ever, you know. But not that there's anything wrong with that. But, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, you know, that's Evan Moblin, who was my boss at, at that time. And, and we, we talked about this issue of complexity, right? And he, I remember him saying, he, he, he chuckled and he said, people are complaining about GPL3 draft being too complex. Of course it's complex. What do they want, the BSD license? BSD license is very simple for a reason. It doesn't do anything, right? But I think this, this is true. But I think that, um, you know, it's possible that, that GPLv3 went too far in the other direction. There's a cost to complexity. And that's, this is uh, Jeremy Allison, and uh, uh, although he didn't look like this at the time, uh, in, in 2006, at some point, he, he said, I was actually just at an OSDL uh, meeting, I believe, he said, he was, he was criticizing something about the, one of the interim drafts of GPLv3. And he said that, you know, you know, you're adding too much complexity. He was talking about this provision of GPLv3, section 7, that talks about how, you know, you can add additional permissions and certain types of additional restrictions, just codifying traditional FSF practice. But he was saying, you know, this could lead to permutations of the GPL and leeches, just make everything way too complex. Uh, developers want licenses to be tokens. They want to, they want LGPL to stand for a very simple thing. They want the GPL to stand for a very simple thing. And I think he was getting at this idea of, you know, at a certain point, complexity can go too far. And I, I did, you know, some word counts, uh, and, and, you know, you see how, how much longer GPLv3 is than GPLv2. Uh, and how much longer GPLv2 is than the Apache license, and how much longer the Apache license is than the MIT license. I highlighted uh, the example of Creative Commons CC BY essay because it's very interesting that uh, Creative Commons licenses use this approach where they have uh, this very uh, short, what they call human readable code, um, which is very simple, and, and, and then they have what they call the legal code you have to click on, and then you see this, uh, this web page that presents the whole text of the license in kind of small, you know, by default small font, and it looks like it's a, it looks like a complex license that you don't want to read, but it's, it's, it looks like it's short, but it's actually interesting how long CC by SA 3.0 is. So I think in, in terms of at least appearance, and maybe because of that whole deed versus legal code approach, um, Creative Commons, uh, solved this problem of complexity, perhaps. Uh, so wh why is complexity bad? I mean, I, I think that there's, in some ways, it's obvious. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, at the margin, simplicity is always better than complexity for if you want to try to understand a license. You disagree. Well, okay, so you can disagree about that. But, but, but there is, even if you disagree, there is a problem I have seen with, with that relates to complexity. So. So I think it leads to this attitude that I see in myself, and I see I see in you, Bradley, sometimes, of this idea that you know the GPL is this this thing that only we experts understand, and you know you know you you have to be 
part of the in crowd to, to kind of understand it. You have to spend years and years studying it to understand it. And that's something I think that probably turns some people off, right? It's, it leads to this kind of, this sort of legalistic view of the GPL that, you know, I mean, I, 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 Bradley, I, I think, I'm not going to troll you in this talk, but, but, but uh, I think of this, for a while you were given this talk about um, how GPLv3 was better than GPLv2, and you talked about the um, provision of GPLv2, section 3, which is, details the way that you can comply with the source code requirement of distribute binaries. And you kept saying something that was wrong. And I kept telling you that you were wrong about this, and you kept on saying it. You're saying if you distribute uh, binaries over a network, you cannot provide source code over a network, right? And that's wrong. But, but you were convinced that you were right, and I, and I think that you, you, you took a certain pleasure in this. And I understand that pleasure because I feel it in myself, because I think we feel good that we understand, we think we understand this complex license that so many people don't understand. All right, well, but it makes for a better story. So, so you know, and, and that's what it's about. You know, what I think is uh, it's, it's this power shift, you know. It's shifting powers away from developers to, you know, my class and your class. So my class is the lawyers, your class is the capital E establishment. And, and you know, this is a, I think, I think people are getting tired of this, you know, developers at least, right? So they want to have the power over their code. So I think, and, and you know, it's also this, maybe just this purely aesthetic preference for minimalist licensing. Uh, developers may just have a kind of uh, a preference for simplicity. That's uh, just as some may prefer simplicity in art and so forth. So it may you know, go beyond all these uh, policy issues, right? Uh, another issue, uh, I theorized that um, the complexity of GPLv2 was manageable because the FSF played a very active role in providing guidance to the GPL project using community over what the GPL meant. It was, they were never the authoritative guide, of course, and many people disagreed with what they said, but they provided an important role in sort of the outer bound of commercially reasonable interpretations of the GPL. I would sort of put it that way. And, and they stopped doing that. With, with GPLv3, I, I, I just don't see that as much. I, I, I know that uh, it's partly an issue of resources, right? So people should donate to the FSF. Uh, you know, they basically just have Brett Smith doing that kind of work, and he does a great job. But, but I just see, you know, my impression is that the FSF is less active in that role. Whereas in years past, you know, RMS used to be very active on Usenet, you know, saying what he thought the GPL meant. He, he would settle arguments over, over disputes over the interpretation of GPL. And, and the way he settled arguments was basically he came up with the right interpretation, the, the interpretation that basically made the most sense in terms of the text, made the most sense in terms of copyleft policy, and was the most commercially reasonable interpretation. And I don't think the FSF does this anymore. Uh, and the other problem, of course, is well known in part, the, the, that in, a, in an era where everything is shifting to the cloud, whatever we mean by that, the, uh, if we're talking about situations where uh, bits are not distributed to third parties, uh, GPL has no advantage over a simpler license like the BSD license. Uh, and Bradley used to talk about that a lot. But the other side to this, which I don't think you did talk about, is that the developers in this area don't like the GPL anyway, and they, they aren't going to like the AGPL because because that's from that's the same. They don't like copyleft, right? So 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 these developers are already anti-copyleft to begin with. They're not going to adopt the AGPL. You know, part of it is actually, frankly, that they want jobs with these SaaS companies, and these SaaS companies don't want to adopt some kind of like. Uh, you know, dual licensing type business model of an evil sort, and typically they, you know, they they, they want to keep their network services code proprietary, and so these they have an incentive. These developers don't want to use the AGPL for projects that they don't, you know, that, that their potential employers are not going to use, right? But you know, yes, it, I think the the main thing is that AGPL 
this is very sad to me because I worked on this license. AGPL was captured uh, from the get-go by these dual licensing hucksters. It was like the last stand of the dual licensors. And um, you know, the, most use of the AGPL, I would say, in the world that I see of significant projects is by uh, what Bradley would call these proprietary relicensing companies. And uh, you know, this, in a sense, maybe this provides some evidence indirectly for my theory that the reputational harm is what's leading developers away from uh, the GPL. So I, you know, I don't. Uh, Ten minutes left. Yeah. I don't know uh, if there really is anything to do about it because I don't know if it's actually a problem. Even if even if there is a decline in the GPL, you know, it can't be very big, right? And um, you know, maybe it's a small shift in the direction of non-copyleft. And so, what's so bad about that? Uh, this means we'll experiment and we'll learn things about you know uh, whether non-copyleft licensing is better in particular situations versus copyleft licensing. We'll, we'll get some experience and data. And this is always valuable to, to kind of learn. I mean, from my perspective at Red Hat, I, I, I think it's very valuable for us to be experimenting with more than just using GPLv2 all the time. You know, it's very valuable to see you know, what effects will we get in a particular case uh, if we put a project under the Apache license. Will we build a stronger community than we might have gotten under the under GPLv2, right? So, um, but if there is a long-term decline, I think that is a bad thing because I, I think I really do believe in GPL and strong copyleft as a policy idea. It's, it's not, I, I think, a something that's supposed to be universal, but I, I think it is an important um, fundamental part of the legal. Uh, toolkit for um, open source and free software projects, and and if if um, if it goes away, you know I think that's uh, free software won't be dead, but something important will be lost, and it could be very harmful. So uh, I think that it's not uh, too early to think about what the GPL should look like in the future. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's not the, the GPL, the FSF. Maybe it's some other strong copyleft license. I, that's that's kind of a far-fetched idea, I admit. But but I don't think the FSF is interested in, in drafting a new version of the GPL anytime soon. They will someday, I'm sure. Uh, and I don't think they agree with me about some of these ideas. So I, I, in a sense, there's not much point in saying this. But 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 I, nonetheless, I think it's useful to think about, right? And and who knows what will happen in the future? There might be a different kind of strong copyleft license that comes from a different community. We can't predict. What will happen, right? So, I mean, no one would have predicted that the GPL would become so popular. So, in in 1991, right? So, so, and I think it's 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 um you know this is not an orthodox uh, sort of viewpoint. There's this orthodox viewpoint that that we've uh, reached this nice era of uh you know where there's no more license proliferation and we've standardized on a small set of licenses. And I sort of believe that, but I think it's it's I, I'm concerned about us entering this conservative era where we don't have any experimentation with new kinds of licensing models or licensing models that aren't coming from very sort of sort of capital E establishment organizations. Uh, so, you know, I don't have good ideas about GPL before, but I think this idea of complexity is is something I think about. Maybe it could be short. Maybe it could be a short license, right? Um, Alison Randall was criticizing GPL v3 in 2007, and she wrote as an experiment a very short version uh, that she thought Captured everything the FSF was trying to do in uh, GPLv3, but in maybe like one tenth of the language uh, of the words. Uh, a guy at uh, the University of Washington Law School did the same thing. He got a license approved by the OSI, and later in 2007, that was the same idea: a very short license, uh, very simple language, but trying to achieve you know what he thought was Richard Stallman's policy goal. You know, probably not. Richard Stallman would disagree with this, but but. Uh, 
it, it was, it, you know, I think it was intended as a strong copyleft license. Another possibility is to uh, deal with the complexity the way Creative Commons does. Uh, so, you know, win over the hearts and minds of developers who are turned off by uh, complexity by, uh, you know, this splitting up the actual legal code as this, as Creative Commons says, from uh, a simplified version of it that developers can more easily understand. I, that's something I used to be very critical of. I'm, I'm not so critical of it anymore. Um, but whatever it should be, it should be, you know, something that really implements this uh, policy vision that Richard Stallman had back in as long ago as 1985. I, I don't disagree with that policy goal at all. I think it's not appropriate for all projects, but I think it, it should be a part of uh, the set of commonly used licenses. And, and uh, uh, I just think that the way you implement it is not necessarily a license that is as complex as GPLv3 or that tries to do things, uh, as many things as GPLv3 does. And maybe the answer, maybe I'm wrong, maybe that it, you know, it has to be that complex to achieve things uh, in a, a legally airtight way, so you know that's obviously the counter argument. But that's that, that's my view. And, and I mean, so another way to manage the complexity actually is is you look at history. Uh, you you, uh, you could have a simpler license, and then have interpretation of the license uh, becoming separately from uh, an authority that is well respected. So that could be the FSF. You know, that's the role that the FSF played in the past. They they provided guidance, as I said, on what GPLv2 meant. And uh, I think that um, we, we've kind of shifted too far where all we have is the license text and um, we don't have as much of that interpretation coming from this well-respected authority on what the license means. That is it. Thank you. you have objections well I, I think I think that what you were saying before we listened to Richard's talk is basically correct I think that he says I don't know if this is true but maybe my instinct tells me that maybe this is the way things are I, I think that he leaves out the, the the key issue which which I think is true about the situation he's talking about and it's that because and this was actually John Sullivan was getting this to this in his talk that we listened yeah, to a few episodes ago. Yeah, I was so glad ago. that we played his first. So John was pointing out that there's more free software than ever. So to say to talk about this decline of GPL situation is is a little bit strange and say that somehow it's a failure of FSF because FSF's goal is to cr create and have a free software for any possible job you might want to do with a general purpose computer. And if there's more of that out there, regardless of its license, whether it's a permissive or a copyleft license since that's success of FSF's mission. Well, I don't know that he was necessarily saying that. And actually... Well, the, the, I haven't gotten to my point yet. My point okay. is that Fontana ignores that issue and basically says, well, there's this decline of copyleft. And I think the reason there's a decline of copyleft, if there is one, which I, there, that's in dispute, is whether or not uh, there's a... It, it basically a need for copyleft and the more free software you have under permissive licenses that people contribute to voluntarily the less you need copyleft copyleft is a tool to try and encourage people to contribute back when they wouldn't otherwise do so uh, and not but for the license require them to do so and I, I think Fontana's talks tend to ignore this fact the reason developers I think drift towards the permissive licenses, particularly younger developers who have grown up effectively in a free software world, they don't know what it's like to have a world where most of the software that you might encounter is proprietary. So they're like, well, everybody gives back. Well, what's the deal? 
I think a lot of developers have that reaction. And, and, and then this, and, and this is sort of the, the situation of, Hey, wh- why do I need copyleft if everybody's going to give back anyway? And, that, so and that's, that's some of what the world we live in do right you, now. Do you think that's more, I mean, do you think it's more about that than about what Richard is saying about, um, you know, the fact that developers prefer simplicity? I think some, some, some developers, I prefer simplicity, but the thing is, is that most permissive licenses are not that simple. I've heard developers who prefer permissive licenses want the, the well, shortest possible license. I mean, but I Apache think, license is not that simple, for example, I, I, which is the I think big it's certainly license to jur. Well, it is. It is. You're right. I, I think it's a lot simpler than the um, various versions of the GPL for sure. Apache? I don't think so. I think I think I, think I, think I could so. say ISC is. I, well, I would, ISC I would, is for sure, but the ISC doesn't have any. It doesn't have any patent provisions, so you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think that I think that the developers Richard's talking about that that are more inclined to use Apache license uh, have lived in a world where people generally give back because they want to. I, I think that copyleft is is a, a strong belief in strong copyleft and and strong desire for copyleft is breeded in a world that I entered when, when I started working in free so- in software. It was proprietary Unix and proprietary compilers. I, I, most people, I, I don't know anybody really who on a daily basis in the free software world uses a proprietary compiler mm-hmm. anymore. In the free software world, we were still using proprietary compilers when I started because GCC didn't work everywhere yet. So, and I, and I had to support proprietary compilers early in my career. The core dumped, I, I supported proprietary compilers, the core dumped on linking that I couldn't fix. And I don't know anybody anymore who's, younger than me who's ever faced that scenario those kinds of scenarios they've they've had free software compiler all along because gcc has always been there yeah, these I are the same people who say well what's the problem if we go to lvm i'm like well in 10 years lvm will be proprietarized yeah, right yeah. And that, well i mean i think that's i mean i think that's maybe the part of the, the case that maybe some of this stuff is cyclical because you know as you see the proprietorization of code bases that are permissive um you know and and you know you get the same examples as like you know like the ghettoized versions of of copy lefted software um, you know, that, that maybe caused the same backlash and the same reaction that Fontana is talking about. Um, I don't know. This, this is going to happen with OpenStack. This is the, the, the OpenStack code base. I'll predict it now. <laughs> the OpenStack code base, which everybody is contributing to now under Apache license, everybody's happy. It, it will get good enough such that the, the the innovation people want to do, they're going to say, well, wait a second. I've now, I, now that the base code is so good, I don't really want to give back my new fangled thing that I've done for it. Uh, and I, I think that that might happen. I, I, I mm-hmm. just listened to the false weekly about, about open shift, uh, which is a very poor name. Um, but it, it, uh, it, it's, it's actually built on to, it uses o, uh, open stack underneath and is actually a free software code base because basically Red Hat acquired it and released it. So that might be hopeful, but they released it again under Apache license because it's a Ruby community and it's mm-hmm. one of these. But uh, that is also as we've, as we've also advised people in the past, which is that you should pay attention to your, you know, what community you, you intend to work with when you release a license. That's a message that I actually learned from you early on. Mm-hmm. When I first started working at SFLC. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you're picking a new license for a project, it's, it's less of an issue in the sense that, that you can create, you're creating the community from, from scratch because you've just released the code base. So I, I'm more concerned about that in terms of if you have a patch. I, I think it's, I think it's unfair and, and a little bit, uh, mean to take a permissive license code base and fork it 
copy left. You you basically have to have a basically the the you have to have a hugely good reason for that. You can't you shouldn't just do that mm-hmm. um, just because you feel like it. But this point about simplicity really haunts me. Um, you know, I really I, ever since I listened to this, I've really been thinking a lot about it because I, I think there really is there really is something to it. And you know, I I've been critical of the Creative Commons licenses in their legal deeds. Um, for, for oversimplifying and confusing people about, um, you know, about what those situations are. But as, um, Richard says in his talk, um, and I'm not sure how long ago you listened to it last, but, um, but, uh, he, he mentions a story about you talking about one of your, um, you know, you talking about a provision of the GPL and getting a little bit wrong. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't wrong, but that's not right. It, well, right. But, but it does happen, you know, often mm-hmm. that legal experts or people who are very familiar with the licenses think they understand, you know, I, I tell you that, you know, as someone who's a lawyer who's been really active in this space for a long time, I get nervous every time somebody asks me a question about the GPL and I read the license again every time. It makes me nervous because I worry that maybe I'm not getting it quite right or I've forgotten or I've conflated or I've heard something somebody else has said and I thought it was... Anyway, it's, you know, and and if it makes me nervous, then I, you know, how how does it make other people feel who aren't lawyers and who haven't been working exclusively, you know, in this field? So, you know, I've been critical of the CC licenses because I think that the deeds oversimplify and people have no idea what the Creative Commons licenses say. They just take, you know, those summaries um, you know, and, and, and run with them. And maybe Mike Linksberry is going to write, <laughs> write in and complain about me saying this, but it always has made me nervous. And, um, and, you know, I, I think, um, you know, and I remember talking a long time ago with Richard Fontana about this and he, he sort of agreed with me. And now he's sort of saying, well, maybe that's not such a bad way. And I actually hearing him talk about this, it, it, it's sort of convincing to me that maybe we need something, you know, something comparable. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think he really does make a good point, which is that, you know, I think developers really do care about their software. Otherwise, you know, what, where would we be with the free software movement? I think developers really do care and I think they do want to feel empowered and they do want to feel like they're in control and of, of, of their software and making sure that they feel like they have the tools to understand what their licenses that they pick do is really important. And I think that, um, while the FSF has sort of shifted a little bit and focused on campaigns potentially more than, um, you know, some of this license guidance, um, that Richard is talking about. Um, and I agree with him that it's a matter of resources and everybody here right now should give to the, <laughs> to the FSF if you haven't already. But, um, uh, but. Well, he did not agree with him. He, he usually makes this not comment about me saying it's about resources. No, um, he's, well, he said. Uh, in his talk, I, I, I thought. Referring said, back to me. He said, but he, he did say, please mm-hmm. donate to the FSF yeah. if you haven't. And, you know, and I, 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 I believe that it is a, in part a resources issue at the FSF. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just think that, I, I just, I just think that, that he, he really does have a good point about that. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of convinced that I, I need to sort of re- rethink my stance on, on some of this stuff. Well, I, I think that, the the problem i mean we could, we could switch to the sleepy cap license for for copyleft for the simplest copyleft in in active use today i suppose i i don't i don't think that the improvements to gplv3 added complexity unnecessarily i i think that the decisions made for gplv3 were to fix problems with regard to v2 uh, and things that needed to be corrected and, and made easier and made better and made more friendly to companies in a lot of cases in, mm-hmm. in V3. 
and uh, and and Fontana, I presume, would argue, well, that's because you screwed it up the first day. You just keep you keep patching this this broken code, and you need a complete refactor. Uh, I don't see him proposing a license. Uh, I, I mean, and this is my issue with him is that is that he he's he's a gadfly and he's a critic and he's not someone who's actively anymore trying to draft licenses and trying to draft a, a new copy left that he thinks is right. He's also not in the position to do it because he's inside a company and it would be a Red Hat endeavor. And, and I, I'm sure no one would want to switch to the license Red Hat says everybody should switch to uh, that they did, that they drafted themselves and, and came out with themselves. But uh, so I understand he's not in a position he can do it now, but but I don't see anyone stepping forward and saying, I'm going to draft the new copy left that's simpler. Basically, I see the, perm- the, the, the divide coming back, the divide between permissive and copyleft coming back and people people being anti-copyleft and and that's all on the rise again uh, for different reasons because now people say well everybody gives back under voluntarily uh, and so why 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 do you need this this horrible like heavy-handed license that requires giving back because everyone's just going to give back voluntarily because everyone will always do the right thing ever forever <laughs> including for-profit companies they'll always do the right thing and my company will always do the right thing. Well, I I just don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not I'm not advocating for a rewrite of the GPL for simplicity. I'm actually saying that what Richard has mentioned about the human readable code is a is an is interesting and new to me after having rejected it is not is not particularly um you know applicable or easily implementable for the free software licenses i just think that i think that it's really hard to read the gpl right away and understand what that means and you know and and get that high level summary because the creative commons licenses are not simple when you read the Mm-hmm. Actual and legal language, the actual license, they're not simple. And the good things about the earlier version of GPL, they were primarily written by developers. Uh, and I think there were too many lawyers involved in GPL v3. I think that's part of the problem. If there's a problem with GPL v3, it's we have too <laughs> many lawyers. Uh, and, and, and I, I want to just say for the record also, I'm not criticizing the Creative Commons licenses for being too complex either. These are complex issues and they need to be dealt with precisely or we're going to have a lot of confusion down the road. Like I don't, I think there is need for complexity. And the reason why having lawyers being involved in the drafting of these licenses is a good idea, especially in GPL v3, where those lawyers were often in many different jurisdictions where there was an eye towards internationalization, which necessarily makes it more complex. I just think that, you know, I, I just think that maybe we're not doing the best job in advocating for these licenses such that we can make them very readily understandable. Well, I, I think I think that people don't want to understand them. People, people have. I, I I know people in the free software world who continually um, criticize uh, uh, licenses without without understanding them and and are constantly doing it. Uh, and, and, and don't bother to, to try to understand them because it's, because it's basically easier to, to criticize something that you don't understand than it is to actually understand and then have a, a well thought out criticism. Uh, so, so I, I think that that's going to continue and it's going to get worse because there is this belief among a lot of developers that we don't actually need copyleft anymore, that, that now, now's the time to unilaterally disarm. That's the attitude of, of free software developers. And that part I agree with Fontana about. Most free software developers, it's time to unilaterally disarm, copyleft, everybody's giving back. 
uh, proprietary doesn't happen that often because right, in their world right. it doesn't. And then they sit there and use a Mac anyway. Right. And they're using a Mac and they're like, well, proprietary software doesn't happen anyway. And, and well, that's interesting. the thing I, I care about is free software and, and developers are hyper specialized now. So you go to any given space. So, so take a look at, the, so here's a great example. So Linux kernel developers, they all run, uh, generally speaking, they run GNU Linux systems and, and so forth. Um, they, they sometimes hate GNOME, which is unfortunate. <laughs> um, but, but they, they all run a, a, a GNU Linux machine. Um, so this code they care about is free software. You take the average Ruby developer, they run a uh, Mac and the code they care about is free software because they only care about the infrastructure and the language being free software. They don't care about, uh, their competitors, uh, cloud platform being free software because they're writing their own. Um, and they don't care about their operating system being free software because they don't want to work on their own. Um, and, and, and so it's certainly true that software in general has gotten better and more reliable, including Macs, which from what I understand from Mac users are relatively reliable. They don't break that often. Uh, if you use them, you know, in the way what's set on the tin, which is basically don't learn don't think um and if you use it that way it works and so people are like oh well it, my 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 operating system works and i just care about my ruby applications so my ruby applications are free software or as they would probably say open source so it, when you have developers this specialized where nobody chases a bug from user space to kernel space anymore which i done in my life and a lot of people have done in their lives but people younger than me mostly haven't they don't really see the ma- they don't it doesn't matter to them that that which which parts are free software as long as the only the parts they care about are free software. Well, I thought what was interesting in Fontana's talk is that he he says that this is a problem that doesn't come from that comes from a lack of enforcement of the license. In part. Because that if you know, if copyleft licenses aren't being enforced, then they're not really meaningly differentiable from And look at the backlash that Somebody like me who does enforcement gets look at the look at the the amount that that I and Harold Velta are made into pariahs because we enforce the license, right? So, well, that's I mean that's why I bring it yeah. up. I mean yeah. because I think that's really interesting because I think that's actually a really good point. Um, you know, and 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 who could expect the copyleft licenses to have any kind of special meaning in that way in an ongoing fashion if they're not being enforced? Because if they're not being enforced, they may as well. Be permissive, right? And and that's and that's what I said later in my talk immediately after. Um, although uh, although uh, James Bottomley and Ted Joe walked immediately out of the room after Fontana's talk and didn't hear mine, um, but uh, I I said in my talk that I'm going to keep enforcing copyleft as long as there are developers that want me to enforce copyleft. I don't have that many copyrights to enforce on my own. I admit that readily. Uh, if I went trying to enforce my own copyrights, uh, they'd be written out pretty fast. <laughs> so I'm enforcing on behalf of others. Uh, be either either those who have assigned to conservancy or those who. Uh, well, those who want the conservancy to enforce on their behalf. Yeah, I think more and more people are starting to recognize how valuable this is. So, Oh, I don't know about that. I think more and more people are starting to recognize that if they just put the squeeze on those who support enforcement. <laughs> well, um, I, I yeah. think that that's, I mean, I think that may be right from a business perspective, but mm-hmm. we, we really are a rich community. I mean, we really, mm-hmm. we really do have a strong ideological base too, or mm-hmm. our no one would listen to our podcast otherwise. It's true. I think, I think that, and I, and I'm, I'm fond of saying there's a, there's a, uh, uh, there's a silent majority who support, uh, the copyleft and want to see it enforced. Um, and I, I think that, I, I think that if, if we get to the point where we can really encourage more people to care about copyleft, uh, and, and do something about it, I think, I, I think, I think people will. The problem is, is that it's really difficult work to do, and it's not work that, that engineers like to do. And this this relates back to Fontana's talk: is that reading a license and really understanding it is not what what engineers 
and developers generally want to do. They want to actually make the technology work. They want a policy they can understand. And, and this point, I think Fontana is right about is that they want a, po- this is where the deed issue comes in. They want to, yep. developers want a policy they can understand quickly. Yeah. And then that's decision. my, that's my point. But, yeah. But, but the thing I try to get across and that's, is that's what haunts me about Richard. I mean, that's the, that's the, I mean, he said a lot of things in his talk and that's one of the things that really has stuck with me. Um, and, and I've been thinking deeply about. I think that we basically need to raise the level of discourse about licensing issues because I think that developers can and are able to understand these, these level of policy questions. I, I think absolutely, but we need to present it in a way that's not so much work. Well, anything is like, going to be work. I, I think that we have to get to the point where developers actually care. And, and I think developers used to care. There used to be a real desire to understand copyleft and, and to work within copyleft when, when proprietary software is right. more of a threat. And until, until people, it, the interesting thing will be, I mean, I'm going to hopefully live long enough now that I will see the dark ages come. That there will be slowly but surely, um, ghettoized versions of all these permissively licensed projects oh, out I, there. Oh, I, I don't think we're very, we're not that far. I mean, well, absolutely. Yeah, I think in the next yeah. 10 years, um, I, as I don't these, even think it's that far out. Well, it'll be over the next 10 years because, because it'll happen in different, uh, spaces, uh, more quickly or more slowly. Uh, for example, the, the whole OpenStack thing just getting started and all these companies starting up around it, everybody contributing back. It could take six years, seven years before there's really a, a set of proprietary forks that are. I'll be surprised if it takes that long. <laughs> well, it, ta- <laughs> it takes, okay. well, it takes longer to write software than I, I think, I think a lot of people forget how long it takes to actually write software that anybody wants uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a much harder task than than everybody realized like oh yeah you just uh you know i've i've, I've known other lawyers uh who who <laughs> who are not experienced programmers and think that code just is, is that quick to write it takes a long time to write a good uh set of features for something that, that are really innovative and new um fixing bugs is one thing but they're always going to push the bug fixes upstream they're always going to release the bug fixes willingly under the apache license because it doesn't matter that much it's it's the new big exciting features they're going to want to proprietize it's going to happen oh, with absolutely. with these permissive code base. Uh, we'll see it happen with lvm we'll see it happen with with uh, openstack type things um uh, the interesting thing is that is that if we can keep some of the infrastructure pieces free and and as to take an example from Fontana's world with jboss being lgpl'd I mean, I think it's a reasonable place to use LGPL, uh, because it's, it's a, a platform that's replacing a proprietary platform and it's gained wide adoption. And, and that's exactly what LGPL yeah. was designed for. Yeah, and and it, it's going to keep JBoss free software. I, I don't ever want to write enterprise Java stuff yeah. myself, but I, I want enterprise Java developers to have software freedom and, and JBoss is a way to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's an example of using copy. We copy left because it's the right choice in that case to, to keep that happening. Um, well, I think we should actually, I like, I think we should actually wrap it up since the, this talk was, was much longer than the other ones. Okay. That sounds uh, fun. But we, we may continue some of these discussions another time, surely. Okay. So, uh, so how many more talks are we going to do? I don't, I don't think we have very many more. We have a couple more. We but we have a couple of other episodes lined up that we want to do. So we may take a break from using talks. Yeah. We have interviews lined up too. Yep. We're talking to interview people. So we'll maybe do some interviews again. It's going to be um, fun. Okay.
Degrees in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot us. Thank you.